to Isaiah and chapter 48. I invite you to turn your attention with me this Lord's Day morning. Isaiah chapter 48, we'll be reading the entire chapter. As you are turning, I will inform you that some scholars do not think that Isaiah 48 belongs here. Somehow they think this chapter must have been inserted on accident because it doesn't fit, in their opinion, with the more gracious, less condemning uh, tone of this second half of Isaiah. But Isaiah, we know, has been dealing with and will continue to deal with a rebellious people from beginning to end of this book. And that's precisely uh, what makes the grace of God uh, seen in this book and in this chapter in particular so, well, uh, gracious. The fact that God continues to appeal to them, even in this chapter, even in the sternest of terms, is testimony to the grace of God and very striking. God holds out his hands to a rebellious people and still he says, come. Of course, those people must come. They must respond. They must repent. Salvation by grace does not undo human responsibility, we know from the scriptures. So we're not surprised that Israel, and by extension ourselves here in this chapter, are called to the carpet. We're faced here with the eternal consequences of our actions or of our inactions, precisely by that gracious God who is both merciful and severe. Let's pray. Father in heaven, send thy spirit, we ask, and open your word to us, we pray. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 48. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city, and they stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth, and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass, because I know that you are obstinate, And your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth... I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today you have never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called 
a rebel. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called, I am he. I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon. His arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river. And your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand. And your descendants like like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon. Flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He he split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. None could stand, or so it was thought, before Alexander the Great as he led his army to the east, relentlessly expanding the borders of his empire. He was a courageous leader and brutal. And one thing he could not abide in his army was cowardice. In court, he was exacting and merciless. None could deliver out of his hand. One day, a 17-year-old handsome youth was brought before him. Alexander looked at him. What is this crime? Alexander asked. He was caught running from the enemy, hiding in a cave. He is a coward, the official answered. Alexander's face hardened, but he looked at the boy again and he softened just a bit. And then he said, what's your name? 
People knew the boy had won the king's heart. With a sigh of relief, he answered, Alexander, sir. Alexander's face hardened again. What? Alexander, sir? He stammered, growing red with anger. Alexander the Great repeated his question in disbelief. Soldier, what is your name? Alexander, sir. Now standing directly in front of him, Alexander, through clenched teeth, growled, Soldier, either change your conduct or change your name. Truly to hold a great name, a name of distinction and privilege, one must live to the level, rise to the level of that name. If one fails to live up to the name, in effect, he forfeits the name. And that's exactly what had happened to God's people Israel. That name, that privileged name, Israel. You remember where it came from, of course. It was handed down to them from their father Jacob, who himself had been given that name, had his name replaced with the name Israel by God Himself, It was God's blessing to Jacob to give him that new name, that name in which was contained the very name of God himself, El. And so, Israel. And so, a blessing to Israel to bear that same name. Israel's conduct, however, showed that they were not worthy of the name. They had willingly descended into idolatry, into false worship, into immorality and disobedience. Despite the calls of many prophets who came, whom God sent to them, they would not repent. All the while they claimed to be one thing, though they were in reality quite another. Israel said, that she was God's covenant people, but as a matter of fact, they had trampled all over God's covenant. They had no interest in God's precepts, his laws, his promises. Religion, for them, was something for the outside only, not something to touch their hearts, much less take hold of their lives. They were, in the truest sense of that word, nominal. That is, the people of God in name only, which is what nominal means, in name only, from the Latin word nomen, which means name. In other words, by their conduct, they had forfeited the name. And that's why Isaiah addresses them in verse 1 with what at least one biblical scholar considers to be a cold and external address in verse 1. Hear this. O house of Jacob, who are called by the name Israel. He was effectively demonstrating with the name what they had in reality brought upon themselves by their religious behavior, their demotion from a glorious Israel down to a mere Jacob. That's all you are anymore. 
to put it in Alexander's terms, because they would not change their conduct, now they would change their name. Nominalism, name-only religion among the people of God, you see, is nothing new. Nor, alas, is it only old. The sins of our spiritual forefathers and mothers are ours, too. The history of the church is altogether too often a history of ebbing and flowing, and more often it seems ebbing, degenerating into periods of spiritual stagnation. At times, God's people have been much more about the name than they have been about the reality. The church in Isaiah's day had obviously fallen into a terrible slump of nominalism, of name-only religion. They may still, verse 1, swear by the name of the Lord, confess the God of Israel, but they do not do so, Isaiah goes on to say, in truth or right. In other words, they worship. In their worship, they say the right things with their lips. They make their way through the liturgy, but not with sincerity, not with their hearts engaged, not worshiping out of lives given to covenant loyalty to God. Outwardly with their words, they were orthodox. But theirs was a dead orthodoxism. Or to use Paul's words to a young pastor named Timothy to describe many Christians, they had... They had the appearance of godliness without its power. Their worship was not worship given to God in spirit and truth. It was mere lip service, as was their lives. Their faith, the faith of their patriarchs, was not to be seen among them, at least not among the vast majority. They could talk up the name of God while effectively despising him in their hearts, and denying him with their lives, and defaming him with their behavior. The church, later on, that Jesus, the Messiah, found in his day, was not looking for him. She was, in some ways, even worse off than she was in Isaiah's day, after having gone through the Babylonian exile. Oh, there were some, of course, who were looking for the Messiah. We praise God for them. A, a remnant whom God had preserved for himself, the, the Annas, and the Simeons, uh, who welcomed his coming. The rest showed some interest in a Messiah on their own terms. The one who would free them from political bondage to Rome, but whose praises so easily and quickly turned into breathings of murder when those hopes were disappointed by calls indeed to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Out of his death and resurrection, there rose a church, a great church and true, that suffered terribly even as it spread the gospel in every direction like wildfire. A few centuries later, Emperor Constantine brought peace and a new status to the church. But as with the Israel of old, prosperity and a favorable place in the world also fostered nominalism. Large number of people became baptized Christians who had no living commitment to Christ, to the gospel, or to following Jesus as a present Lord and Savior. They made public profession of faith, but lived by sight. 
The accumulation of power and wealth over the centuries that followed only fed that sort of outward type religion that threatened to strangle the church to death from the inside out. In the West, the church expanded as the various peoples who inhabited Europe were Christianized, but only in a superficial way. As the medieval church sunk deep into a mire of corruption that so resembled the very sort of corruption Isaiah condemned in ancient Israel, Reformation was the way out, and it came, of course, in a surprising and unexpected way through the writing of an obscure, unknown German monk by the name of Martin Luther. Europe was reborn. The gospel went out with power again. But as time passed, nominalism returned. For example, when the entire realm of England became Protestant by the decision of its king, it was inevitable that most of the people would be nominal Protestants as they had been nominal Catholics before. And ever since, Christians have tended toward genuineness in some places. Witness the Christians in the underground church in China who suffer, who worship at the risk of their very lives, or African bishops who now are calling America back to obedience and repentance. I say toward that sort of genuineness in some places, toward nominalism in other places. Witness the American South, where it is in fashion to be a Christian, to go to church. I tell you, after living a year in the Pacific Northwest in the early 90s, uh, Debbie and I found, living in that place where hardly anyone claims to be a Christian, There's no desire, you see. There's no motivation to profess to be a Christian in the Pacific Northwest, except among those who are also, for the most part, deeply committed to Christ. It was a shock, I say, for us to move back here and to go, as we did for a while, some of you might remember, from door to door through our neighborhood, talking to people here in Owensboro and finding that every single person in these neighborhoods, lo and behold, is a Christian! They may have not darkened the door of a church for 30 years, except for an odd wedding or funeral. Their Bibles are covered with a layer of dust. Their family life and their business life isn't a whit different because of their profession from the world. But, oh yes, they're Christians. They're members of such and such a church. They're members, many of them, in the sense that Dan Doriani once described members so they can say, that's the church I choose not to attend. But in worship or not in worship, you know the nominalism of which I speak that is a particular problem right here in the place where we live, in the so-called Bible Belt. There is much right in our own neighborhood of the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. My main concern, of course, as your pastor, is how much of the appearance uh, 
of religion, but denying its power, we have right here in this sanctuary this morning. The appearance of religion, but lacking in power and authenticity. I'll tell you, a passage like this causes me first to ask about myself. Am I really, is Pastor John really in reality or just in name only a Christian? And then I'm duty bound to ask you, are you walking by faith and not by sight? Is the worship you offer to God in this place first on your hearts and then on your lips? And then when you leave this place and return to your homes and to your workplaces, when you're all alone and nobody is looking, when you're alone with your family in your office or on the line, do your lives reflect the reality of what you claim to be true about yourselves with your lips? Now, were Christ to appear physically before your view today, how would the conversation go? Uh, would he ask, what is your name? You would say, Christian. What is your name? Christian, my Lord. What would his next words be to you? Would they be change your conduct or change your name? If so, I tell you it would be a loving thing for him to say to you. Loving indeed. The head of the church, of his church, only wants what is best for you, for every member of his church, for his church. He knows, as Paul put it in his letter to the Romans, that not all Israel is Israel. Or to put it in terms that hit a little closer to home, not all of the church is the church. Not all Christians are Christians. Some are in name only. Inside they remain, verse 4, obstinate, with necks of iron sinew and foreheads of brass. They're inwardly as rebellious as ever they were, refusing to bow to Christ. And it grieves him. It grieves Christ. Almost to no end. He says in verse 17, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would be like a river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea, your offspring would have been like the sand, your descendants like its grains. Their name would never have been cut off or destroyed before me. Look at what blessings come to those who embrace the covenant made with them in Christ, responding with a true and living faith, loving the commandments of God 
seeking to obey them with that command to repent from their sin and turn to him in trust and in faith for their salvation, coming at the very first from which repentance and faith springs in turn attention to all of the commandments of God, to love him above all and neighbor as oneself. Peace like a river, he says. Righteousness like the waves of the sea are his, are hers, who love God's law. Notice, my brothers and sisters, notice carefully, it's not perfect obedience that he's requiring of you. It's you know, as if you have to obey every commandment of God flawlessly in order to enjoy peace with him. You can't possibly obey that way. Even the best, most faithful Christian in the world is still struggling with sin in her life. We are still fallen creatures. The point is that such a person desires and strives to put off that sin and put on new obedience to God's commandments out of faith, out of trust, out of love for Christ. And out of that principle that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. She reminds herself to abide like a, like a branch in the vine that is Christ, drawing her life from him, remembering that God's strength is made perfect precisely in our weakness. Think for a moment with F.B. Myers on just one of those pictures God paints for us of his blessing, a blessing for those who turn to him that way. Peace like a river. Myers observes, not as the brook as it gushes rapturously forth, breaking musically on the stones and flashing in the glee of its early life, not as a streamlet hardly filling its wide bed and scarcely affording water enough for the fish to pass to its higher reaches, but like a river far and placid, able to bear navies on its broad expanse to collect contamination, and approaching the sea with the sympathy begotten of similarity in depth and volume and service to mankind. All rivers that minister perpetually to man, not swept by storm, not drained by drought, not anxious about continuance, always mirroring the blue of the azure sky or the stars of night, and yet content to stay for every daisy that sends its tiny root for nourishment. In your growth from less to more, your perennial fullness, your beneficent ministry, your volume, your calm, ye were meant to preach to man with perpetual melody of the infinite peace that was to rise and grow and unfold with every stage of his experience. That is what God has, you see, for those who rest on him with their whole hearts and minds and souls who care nothing, not one bit for the ostentatious show of religion 
but seek quietly and steadfastly to obey the commandments of God out of faith in Him. On the other hand, the one who wants just enough religion to impress others, just enough of Christ to put on a show, just the name, perhaps just enough to anesthetize his conscience, a name to carry around as long as it serves his purposes in a Bible Belt culture, there will be no peace. Just the opposite, verse 22. There is no peace, says the Lord, no peace for the wicked. Now, don't get to thinking here that what he's talking about are people who are outside of the church in the most obvious ways, who are too busy washing their cars to worship God, who cheat widows or kick dogs, who steal when their employers aren't looking. He's talking here about the wicked who dress up for church on Sunday, who oftentimes attend both the morning and the evening services and Sunday school to boot, who sing the loudest, who shake the most hands, but in whom are found only dead man's bones. Such people not only fool others, Sometimes they even fool themselves. They will be genuinely surprised, some of them. They really will be, to hear one day after calling out, Lord, Lord, the response from his own lips of the Master, I never knew you. I shudder to think that might be any of you. And I shudder the more to think that it could possibly be I. Which is why, dear flock, we must take the Apostle Peter's counsel to heart and put it into action to make every effort to make our calling and election sure, to check our rebel hearts, to say to God with the psalmist, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And then to see that our religion, our faith, has hands and feet as well as heart and soul. What we want, in other words, what we want is to rise to the level of our name, inside and out. Christian. Christians, you know wherein your conduct must change. You know what thoughts have yet to be taken captive to Christ. You know what habits must, simply must be broken and what new obedience has yet to be added in their place to your life, what motives of yours that need purifying, what love needs to be vivified, what sins finally put to death. You know those ways. You are merely on the outside, while on the inside you are just the opposite.
you know what must be done. And you know by what divine power it must be done. So now, my brothers and sisters, I say to you, in those areas yet to be conquered in your life and brought under the lordship of your Savior, what remains of the iron sinews of your neck that must be broken and brought under the lordship of your Savior once and for all, I say to you, change your conduct so that you will never have to change your name. Amen.